Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights and Perspectives. I'm your host, Kevin Green. Today, we'll have industry experts with the insights and perspectives on the latest cybersecurity news that impacts your agency and organization. Today, we'll have Dr. Ron Ross, fellow at National Institute of Standards and Technology. Good day, Ron. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. Right off the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, we're here to really talk about cyber and figure out ways the federal government can improve cybersecurity practices. Sounds great. I hope everybody had a great holiday out there. Uh, difficult times we're going through uh, with all the worldwide events, but uh, uh, it's always good to spend time with friends and family around the holidays. Speaking of events, Ron, just reading something on Krebs Security about uh, Dell Dell PC shipping with a security bug since August 15th of this year. Just recently, uh, not too far early in the year, we, we've seen that Lenovo PCs were shipping with Superfish pre-installed. So that leads me to my initial question is, what are some of the challenges the federal government face regarding securing the supply chain, in particular the software supply chain? Kevin, it's a really tough issue, and we we uh, spend a lot of time dealing with supply chain risk. We have a special publication that was authored uh, by John Boyens and his team uh, that deals with supply chain security risk and how to manage that. And to me, the issues are, are pretty fundamental. You know, we have a lot of our manufacturing and our software that some some of it goes on here in the United States and some of it goes on overseas in different countries. But the most important thing to me you can have to help the security related issues of supply chain is transparency in the development process. And we're addressing a lot of these issues. I know we're going to speak a little bit later about the the upcoming second draft of NIST Special Pub 800-160. Uh, that's the new security engineering guideline. But we, we address that issue in the development process. Um, so it's not as important who's developing or where it's being developed as long as you have the transparency. And a lot of the things that are being shipped from overseas, they're, they're complex systems. They have lots of uh, parts to them, uh, both hardware, firmware, and software. And all of those different uh, components are subject to tampering, uh, to uh, malicious code insertion and things that um, can really affect customers downstream. So we have to be able to work in a complex world where we're buying components from different parts of the world. Some of those are being assembled here, some overseas. But in that process, we have to be able to, to develop some level of transparency on the trustworthiness of each of those components and the overall system that we end up with after we, we put those components together. It's not always going to be a perfect world. Uh, there's no such thing as perfect uh, trust or perfect assurance, but it has to be a sufficient level of trust, trustworthiness, based on the application or the mission or the, the focus area where that technology is going to be deployed. Ron, I want to amplify this point, You know, the question that you just answered. In the interview that you did with Fierce Government some time ago, uh, you said that we talk about baking it in, and building it in, but we never do it. Why do you think that's the case? And how do we get federal organizations to incorporate these security best practices when building and designing software systems? Well, again, a complicated problem, but I think there are analogies that we can use in other areas that inform us on how we can do our work better. We certainly have invested a lot at the federal level in information security. We have some great standards, guidance documents. We have great programs going on. Uh, the one at DHS that you're very familiar with, the Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program. 
So we have a tremendous effort going on to building the best practices and the standards and the guidance that people need to protect themselves. The real challenge has been how do you institutionalize that work and operationalize it uh, at the same time? And those are two very important concepts, and, and we haven't done a very good job, in my opinion, of institutionalizing the cybersecurity requirements and, and concepts and things that we've known about for 40 years. And this again brings us back to the focal point of the 800-160 publication. What we're trying to do with that is define based on an international standard, an IEEE and ISO standard, on how uh, can people take a disciplined and structured process, adopt it, and use that then to kind of serve as their guardrails when they're, when they're going through their normal organizational operations, whether they're management or technical in nature. If you have a process that you can follow that ensures that you're making all your checkpoints along the way with regard to security, then that kind of puts up those guardrails so you stay on the road. I had a conversation in episode three, I believe, with Dr. Robin Gandhi from the University of Nebraska-Omaha and his work that he did through uh, a program that I funded uh, regarding looking at the 853 catalog and really trying to look for software assurance applicability through those controls. One of the things that were that was identified with some of the work he did was that there are a considerable amount of controls that are not assigned to any security baseline. I have a question for you. Do you think it's important to revisit these controls given the fact that more and more security breaches are software related? Well, that's a great question, and we're going to handle that in two different ways. We have a major update coming to 800-53 in 2016. As you probably know, we try to update that publication every three years. One of the things we're going to do in early 2016 is put out a data call to all of our federal customers, all the federal agencies, and all of our private sector customers who use 853, and we're going to pose a series of questions. Do we have a sufficient number of security controls? Do we have too many controls? You know, we've been having this debate for years, how many controls we need, and do we have too many, or are we using the right ones? And part of that discussion is going to get to the baselines. Do we have the right number of controls in the baselines? Do we have the correct controls in the baselines? Do we need more? Do we need less? So those are all going to be addressed in our data call. And this is going to keep us connected to our customer base. And with that information, we're going to then come back and we're going to make some adjustments to the publication, not only maybe adding some new controls as the threat space continues to expand, but also redefining certain controls, clarifying supplemental guidance, and do anything we can do to help strengthen. And part of that discussion is going to be about the thing you just uh, mentioned, the issue of the uh, tremendous number of software assurance controls that are not in the baselines. One of the reasons that that, that occurs is because our baselines are kind of a starting point for either a low, a moderate, or a high-impact system based upon your uh, criticality or sensitivity analysis, or the, uh, which is under the FIPS 199 uh, mission business impact that, that organizations in the federal government are required to do. And so we didn't want to load those baselines up too heavily because those then become compliance exercises. The other thing that we're going to do, which is going to be a dramatic uh, change in how we select our security controls is the 800-160 publication I mentioned earlier. And by the way, there is a public draft on our website now. It's uh, May of 2014. It's going to change substantially when we, when we publish our second draft in February of 2016. But we're going to change the way the organizations in the federal government actually select their security controls. And it's going to be a top-down approach versus a bottom-up approach. And again, this is going to get to your question directly because 
right now, the way people select controls is they they do their FIPS 199 categorization. They select the moderate baseline, for example. They may or may not tailor. They lock those controls into the security plan. Then they implement those controls. Many of those controls, especially the, the ones that are in the technical space, like the access control, the identification authentication, systems com communications control, all those controls are typically buried in commercial products, the hardware, the software, and the firmware that our organizations procure and then build their systems from. So what we're going to try to do is use this IEEE and ISO systems engineering standard to identify there's, there's 30 process steps they go through, and uh, some of those are uh, part of the technical build process. Other ones are more in the management and operational space. But the very first set of process steps in the IEEE and ISO standard looks at the mission and business analysis. It says, what problem are you guys trying to solve, or what's the business opportunity? And then from there, it goes right into the stakeholder requirements, and then from there, we evolve the stakeholder's security requirements based on their protection needs. And then after all that is identified and locked in and agreed upon by the stakeholders who are from the C-suite, those are the mission business owners, at that point we then select security controls that are going to satisfy the security requirements, which are traced back to the protection needs, which are traced back to the mission business analysis. So now we have a clear transparency in how those controls are selected and why they're selected, and it will it will justify tailoring out certain controls which are not directly linked back to those mission business requirements. If you can implement that in a disciplined and structured process across an entire enterprise, then you get a much more tailored and targeted set of security capabilities for your organization that will absolutely do a better job at protecting your critical missions and business operations. So that's going to be where the software assurance uh, uh, gets highlighted. And, and by the way, just as a side note, you mentioned uh, Dr. Gandhi's work and, and the work that you'd funded from DHS. We were very impressed with that work, you know, so much so that we were adding a specific appendix in 800-160 that deals with the whole topic of software assurance, and a lot of the content in that appendix is going to be directly traceable back to the work that uh, you all funded from DHS and that was conducted by the University of Nebraska. So um, we're, we're, we're very much collaborative in this space, and that's what we have to do to really move the ball forward, in my view. Wow, what an awesome transition story! I think that's great that our, that federal dollars are, are are actually being used, and there's good collaboration between uh, federal agencies. Well, I think we have to wrap up part one here. We want to thank our guest, Dr. Ron Ross. Stay tuned for part two on cybersecurity insights and perspectives with your host Kevin Green. Until next time, peace. <laughs>